a huge fan of stories like this, celebrating strong African characters. For a long time, when you talk about movies from Africa, it's usually about all oh, these poor, sad people. And, you know, I'm really tired of the poverty porn and the focus on destruction and death. And one thing that I want to do is to celebrate strong, dynamic African characters. I'm Gabriella Tavacoli Bailey, and I've worked in unscripted television as an executive producer and TV executive doing what I love most storytelling. I'm an extremely curious person, and I decided to do this podcast so I can dig in and learn about fascinating people living extraordinary lives. And I called up my very talented friend, Aurelie Minazad, who is a writer and journalist, and together we are going to learn about people's journeys and provide you with a fun listen and a good time. Welcome to Tell Us Something We Don't Know. Today we have director Emma Adosio Deline and Emmy Award-winning executive producer Richard Hall. They've teamed up for their latest film, Bisicero, A Daughter's Story, which is said to be the first major feature about the tragic events in Rwanda in 1994, told exclusively about and by Africans. Between 500,000 to 800,000 people belonging to the Tutsi minority ethnic group, as well as some moderate Hutu and Twa, were killed by armed Hutu militias between April 7th and July 15th, 1994. Bisicero, A Daughter's Story, will recount the little-known true story of the Bisicero resistance in which tens of thousands of Tutsi, led by Barara and his daughter Epiphany, fight against the better-armed forces trying to exterminate them. This movie is slated for release in 2024, the 30th anniversary of the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi. Welcome, Richard and Emma! Thank you. Thank you. Did I get that all right? Uh, yes. <laughs> it's a very complicated context of history, but if you had to just summarize it in in a few words, that that's a good summary. Yeah, the summarizing that was definitely a challenge, but you know, we'll go through all the details here because I think both Gabriella and I don't know that much. We shouldn't we don't know as much as we should know. I think I'm that's, yeah, that's exactly like we're both of us. We were talking <laughs> yeah. ahead of this. We're like, you know, the title of our podcast is tell us something we don't know. And honestly, we don't know very much about it. So that's why we're excited to have you guys. And yes. So kind of give us the top line. In 1994, uh, was sort of the culmination of like 30 years of persecution against the minority Tutsi in Rwanda. The country became independent in the late 1950s. It used to be a colony from Europe. And then when the Belgians left, the Hutu majority took power and they started persecuting the minority Tutsi for years. Many Tutsi fled the country and the persecution got worse. And then the Tutsi actually formed a exile government, an exile army to try to bring equity back to Rwanda for its future. And that ended up turning into some battles that the government, the Hutu government used to persecute more Tutsis. And then finally it triggered a massive massacre of people that started for 100 days in 1994, where the Tutsi, the Hutu government, supported by European allies, by the way, with, with arms, started a full-scale uh, genocide against the Tutsi people. So those figures that you read, 500,000, 800,000, are actually on the low side. They think it's definitely closer to 800 to a million Tutsi, moderate Hutsi, and uh, moderate Hutu and, and Twa that were, that were killed. So keep in mind that the Tutsi civilians weren't allowed to arm themselves with any kinds of weapons other than farm 
instruments like that, that they would have and, and maybe some spears and they're up against an army that's been equipped by a modern european force there's so many stories from this from what happened in 1994 if you think about like if you compare it to like the holocaust there have been 400 films made about the holocaust each one of them highlighting a different story some of them very accurate some of them you know based on real events and these films have been coming out for 75 years without any pause if you look at a chart of films about the Holocaust, they come out every year. There's there's a film because the the stories are so important to tell and there's so many stories to tell. In your introduction, that one of the things that we say about our film is that this is the first major film about this told by Africans, about Africans. And that, that is said for a reason, said the boy sitting in Los Angeles who also has a home in Kigali. <laughs> we say that for a reason because there were a little grouping of films about this around 2005, 2006. You may have heard of some of them. You may have heard of Hotel Rwanda, for example. And all of these films, you know, they're historically flawed. And now, of course, you know, Hollywood taking on a historical subject, you can just pretty much anticipate that no, it didn't happen exactly this way. But when you get into the historical flaws of the films about the genocide, they have some pretty serious consequences. And one of them, uh, Hotel Rwanda in particular, has a serious flaw in it that's so significant that it actually threatens the stability of the government of Rwanda today. And let me explain wow. why that is. Yeah, yes. what, what is that? So here's something you may not know. <laughs> <laughs> the, the protagonist, the hero of Hotel Rwanda, played by Don Cheadle. And Don Cheadle is such a wonderful actor. And, you know, you just fall in love with him on the screen. And, you know, just yeah. like he's one of my favorites. I can't even mention his name around my wife, who is a survivor of, of the Tutsi genocide. The character that he plays is portrayed as someone who went way out of his way to save every Tootsie life he could in, in the hotel he was managing. Yes. This is not true. He was more of a, he would sell safety to people. You know, mm. people had to pay him off to get into the hotel. And if they didn't pay him off, sometimes they were kicked out of the hotel and that meant that they would be killed. Mm. He charged people to drink water from the swimming pool in, in, in the hotel. So he was hardly a philanthropist. He may have actually been, you know, more of a collaborator, collaborator, you know, with the Hutubauer. And so that wasn't in the movie, is what you're saying? Oh, no, that's conveniently not left even. out. Conveniently, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just by watching the trailer, I'm like, that's not even close to what, you, like, you're saying happened. Like, it's just, I, but and he himself was a Hutu married to a Tutsi, wasn't that? Is that was that true? That part? Yes. Yes. That okay. that part well, true. I mean, I think the awkward. film was made. I think the film was made with very good intentions. I, I think that once Hollywood, you know, found a story that was just too good to pass up, like he was a cab driver and he told somebody the story about himself to a screenwriter right. and a screenwriter producer said ah, this story, but you know, it was just too good to be true. He, he wasn't this, you know, this saint. And the reason it's significant is because he has since become, there was a lot of resentment in Rwanda for him getting all this credit for being this hero that he wasn't. Right. But then there were like hundreds of thousands of, of people who fled Rwanda who were perpetrators of the genocide. And they have propped him up as sort of this anti-hero to the president of Rwanda, who was the one who rescued Rwanda from the genocide. So he's actually become, he's been associated with uh, terrorist groups that attack Rwanda on its border. Wow. And he's been associated with, you know, obviously with opposition to the stability of Rwanda that has been hard won after all these 30 years. So the fact that he was glorified in the West has glorified him unquestionably. Anytime he gives an interview, the New York Times and the BBC fawn all over him and, and, 
and and then accuse the Rwandan president of being a you know repressive dictator. And it's it's just a battle. It's a PR battle, is what it is. He is being used by the people who perpetrated the genocide, who fled the country, who actively are trying to destabilize Rwanda to this day. So you see, this is just a movie with Don Cheadle, and all of a sudden, yeah, it's become something that's like people's people's lives. Like eighteen people were killed in a terrorist attack from his group in Rwanda. So it's like, wow, this is kind of mind blowing that a mistake or an arrogant mistake that Hollywood make on a movie like that. I mean, they say, yeah, I saw the movie Hotel Rwanda. He's a great. And why is the president so mean to him? Right, right, right. And that's why you guys are doing this film, because you want to get it. You want to get it right, first of all, first and foremost. Right. And and have it be um, a factual representation of actually what happened. And and Richard, this isn't your first project about this. You have a documentary out as well on Amazon. Is that right? Yes. It's called The 600. And the 600 were 600 of the Tutsi, you know, rebel army forces that were sent to the capital to help protect politicians who were negotiating a coalition government in 1994. And then they became targets of the, of the, of the overall genocide, and they were attacked by the Rwandan army. Much superior forces, they held out, they counterattacked, they rescued people. Eventually, they linked up with their, the rest of their army, and they drove the former government and the former army out of the country and rebuilt Rwanda. And it's a very, that was a very personal film for me because it's basically a story about how my wife was rescued. It was by her uncles. Oh, wow. Wow. And I want to get into that and kind of your connection to, to all of this. So Emma, tell us your kind of POV about it all and where are you from? Where were you raised? And how did you link up with Richard on this project? I'm, I'm Nigerian. I live and I was I was born in Nigeria. I live in Nigeria. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of stories like this, celebrating strong African characters. For me, for a long time, when you talk about movies from Africa, it's usually about all these poor, sad people and, you know, war-torn war. And and some of of it, you know, it's true. But for me, I'm really tired of the poverty porn and the focus on destruction and death. And one thing that I want to do is to celebrate strong, dynamic African characters. It takes a lot to live in Africa and for you to exist and survive there. You have to have to be really strong. And that's my ethos as a director to celebrate this character. And so Richard reached out to me with this project. He reached out to me on LinkedIn and said, hey, I have this project. Do you want to get on a phone call and or talk about it? And then we got on the call and he told me about this world and this character who is still alive today, Epiphany. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the characters. I fell in love with the story. And and that, that was how I got, got involved with the project. And for me, I would keep saying this, is celebrating these amazing, strong people who survived this hard, hard war and came out stronger. And that's like the story of most Africans, you know, surviving in this harsh continent yeah. and still succeeding. Yeah. I wish we had Epiphany, but tell us, how did Richard, how did that story kind of come about for you to kind of open it up? We actually, when, when we released the documentary, we got a, like this very kind of sad plaintive email from someone in Bissacero, which is out in the countryside, in a very poor part of the country and kind of remote. And they said, could you please bring your film and show it here? We think everyone's forgotten about us and we want to, we want to be part of the, the new film. Aww. So that kind of broke my heart because <laughs> they don't have yeah. a, movie, a movie theater there. So I couldn't really arrange a screening, but I wanted to do a follow-up film after the documentary. And the problem with 
doing it is that you know there's no very few survivors everybody's homes were burned down and ransacked so there's no photographs you know everything has changed so you have to tell someone's story like this you have to do it as a feature and that's why i reached out to emma who is making really you know groundbreaking films in nigeria and i i wanted to find you know a strong african woman director to tell me the strong african woman story and i think it's yeah. a perfect it's a perfect match emma's been up we've had several you know, like field trips to go up there to meet the people. And originally we were trying to, going to do the story about Barara, who was the leader of the resistance who got killed. Right. But we had a hard time because of the, you know, just there's no photos of him and very few people are alive today who survived, who knew him and could tell us much about his life or much about him. But Epiphany was standing right there. <laughs> she is right there. And we started talking to her. And the more we started talking to her, we just said, oh, Wait, 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 wait. We, we have to do this. We have to tell her story wow. because it's extraordinary. And she's here to tell us. And she's also here to give us notes on like, we can ask her a question and say, did you actually do this? And she goes, no, it was like this. And, you know, so we can keep a story very authentic. The overall story that attracted us was the fact that this was a huge resistance led by a man who is just basically like a local respected man living in the countryside, you know, he had two farms and two families and, you know, everybody knew this guy. He was sort of like a community icon. And then literally tens of thousands of Tutsi, you know, came toward him to the hills where he lived because they knew about him and they wanted his protection. And he organized a resistance, you know, and there, he was protecting up to, they, the numbers vary, but up to 40 to 50,000 people were either fighting or being protected by him. And then his daughter and his sons fought by his side. Yeah. Most, most, of them, most of them were killed. And originally we thought, we have to tell this resistance story about Barara, but then we changed it to Epiphany's point of view because she's such an amazing resource and she's alive to tell the story. How old is she? Epiphany is, she was 17 and it's, she's 46. Wow, okay. What was her father's background that everybody came to him for protection? Because you, you said he was a farmer, or what was it about him that, what was his background? He was sort of like a chief, <laughs> you know, okay. if you want to use very broad, generic terminology. He was okay. a highly respected man in the community. He had, like I said, he had two farms, so he, had, he, was, he was a man of means. He I had see. cows, which is a very big currency in the countryside of, of Rwanda. He would give cows away to make friendships and bonds between families. He would receive cows from people who wanted to make bonds and friendship with his family. So, I, I mean, he, he was, I wouldn't say he was wealthy. He didn't have servants or anything, but he had a large family, two of them. And he had two large farms. And he had also, as I mentioned, there were other attacks on Tutsis during the whole era of independence for Rwanda. He was a leader of the defend, defense of Tutsis during these smaller attacks. And he was successful in protecting people. I see. So that's why his reputation was so well known. Okay, so I have another, might be kind of a stupid question, but what was the Hutu's justification for it, like always attacking them and always trying to get rid of them? Like, well, what, was their, I mean, <laughs> what was their conflict? Yeah, so uh, it's such a complicated, I mean, you could, you could take a graduate course on this to understand yeah, the, yeah. Don't the, make roots, me do that. the roots of this. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll give you the, I'll give you a cliff note. Yeah. The European colonizers, the Germans, the French, and then the Belgians all had their hand in colonizing Rwanda, which was one of the last African countries to submit to 
Christianity and and colonial and being a colony and that sort of stuff. So they were they were Wakanda. <laughs> if you watch the movies, oh. they literally went when they show that map. You know where Wakanda is. That that's actually yeah. where Rwanda is. But over the years, the Belgians exploited the cultural, not the culture, the, the tribal, I guess, difference between Tutus, Tutsi and Hutus. The Tutsi were 20% of the population. The Hutu were 80%. The Tutsi oh. were, were cow, you know, people. The Hutu were farmers. Yeah. So when, when the Belgians came in, they, they took the Tutsi and they made them their agents of, admin, of administration of the colony. And so this created resentment mm. where there had not been resentment before. So the Tutsi were kind of propped up and they were given, you know, these plum jobs and they were given power in the country. And then there was a shift in the Belgian politics before they granted independence to Rwanda uh, that was largely led by the church. Belgian priests started saying, you know, Hutus, you've been oppressed by the Tutsi for so long, which is really ironic because they were being oppressed by the Belgians. And they, they, they sort of nurtured a movement for independence to put the Hutus in power. So anytime you turn the reins of power from one group to another, there's going to be there's going to be violence basically right. and and then the violence got exploited there was a a movement called hutu power which then started working making what the, what the belgians did even worse i mean the belgians used to do all this like racial studies they would like measure tutsi's foreheads and noses and they would say we can tell you who's a tutsi and who's a hutu by how big their nose and forehead are and they were they were exploiting like it was very much like what the Nazis did with the Jews, you know. And then they they the Hutus, the radio, which was controlled by the government, once Rwanda became independent, was dominated with Hutu power ideology, where they started talking about you know the Tutsis don't don't employ them, don't marry them, don't let them go to school there, and they called them the names you know like the cockroaches and all this kind of stuff, and they they really preyed upon this class differentiation that was created by the belgians because before that yeah these ethnic groups lived together with absolutely no problem yeah right. yeah wow that's so what was it you know you mentioned that your wife is from there so kind of talk to us a little bit about that and and what she experienced firsthand she was from a different part of rwanda but also out in the countryside she is, you know, I mean, she lost about two dozen family members in various ways. She escaped only because her older sister had, you know, was, was with her. She was like 14. Her older sister was like 20, you know, one or two. And they, they ran and they hid and they just hid and they hid and they would get caught and then they'd get away. And, and eventually they ended up in like a displaced persons refugee camp. And their uncles, who were part of the liberating Tutsi army that, you know, came to drive the end the genocide, they came to look for their relatives who they hadn't seen, you know, for like years because they had fled like 30 years before. And they couldn't find any surviving relatives. And they were almost going to give up. And the one uncle just said, I just can't believe that nobody's alive. And so they, they finally, they went to this one DP camp and they literally just walked through the camp asking people, like they'd never met these girls, yeah. but they knew their names. And they went until they actually, they found them. And then the, the girls were like, who are you? You're complete strangers to them. Yeah. And they say, I'm your, I'm your uncle Philbert. He's wearing the RPA uniform. So they knew that he was, you know, legit. And they took them, the two sisters to 
Kigali, the capital city, and and then they sort of became their their family and their parents from that point on. God, that is so traumatic. And you said she was fourteen, and all her, her older sister was. I mean, how does she think when she looks back on it now? So my my wife works at the Shoah Foundation here at USC,、oh, wow. okay, which is a genocide and Holocaust archive, basically、right. set up originally by Steven Spielberg. And she worked prior to coming to the United States in two thousand seven. She worked at the Kigali Genocide Memorial, so you know she is all about the preservation and the history, which has inspired me to make the movies. Although she just doesn't want to talk about her own experience. Yeah, yeah. right. I get that. I understand that. <laughs> What was it like for you, Richard, going to Rwanda for the first time? I've been to Africa, you know, a lot of times before, because mostly because I worked on the Amazing Race. You know,、right. in the、That's、early two、right. thousand, so already had this, you know, great sense of、uh, excitement about going to Rwanda, and I think what impressed me the most was how my wife's family sort of rebuilt itself,、mm. in the sense that calling people sister, dad, you know, cousin, who maybe not even are your sister, dad, or cousin, <laughs> just because the need for family is just so great, and then.、Yeah. Of course, I met the two uncles, the two veterans of the of the Rwandan Patriotic Army, and right away it was like getting these amazing tales of like what happened, how they found you know my wife, how they how they how they drove the you know the the government out of the country, how they were you know they were just all morale and and no sophisticated weapons and out outnumbered. But they were fighting for a cause, and and the other side was not really fighting for a cause. They were just trying to kill people. Yeah. So they were very inspiring, and and then actually there was a museum had just opened up called the Campaign Against Genocide Museum, which nobody goes to, but it had just opened up that like the same week that I came to Rwanda, and it's a military museum, and I went in there, and and my uncles had already been filling my ear with their own stories, and then I go to this museum, which is all about the six hundred. Uh, soldiers and、oh. and the rest of the and the rest of the RPA, and it's very impressive. You know, it's one of the great military stories of all time. What they did, and then I just walked out of the museum and I just talked to one of my wife's cousins was in media in Rwanda. When I said, "Hasn't why hasn't who's making the movie about this?" Because it's just it's too amazing. And she said, "Nobody," because you know the arts were not like the first thing Rwanda wanted to rebuild after being at ground zero. Yeah. So I ended up making that movie about the six hundred, and then, of course, inspired to make this movie about the civilian resistance in Bissasero afterwards. Gotcha. So, how did it all end in in nineteen ninety four? What is the status of the Tutsis now? So, the same general who led the Tutsi rebel army to liberate Rwanda and the genocide, that same general eventually became the president of Rwanda, and he's. Been the president of Rwanda for three terms, and he's running for a fourth term. Wow! And in that time, many things have happened in Rwanda that would be unbelievable. One is it's become the Singapore of Africa. Now you're talking about a country that went from below ground zero, where just like、yeah. millions of people dead, and even the animals dead, and everything burned down, and just like you know the, the worst place on earth in 1994. He his forces drove the quite a few. Of the former army out of the country, and they went into Congo, among other places, and they're still there. They they you know created their own communities, and they've sort of been a threat to Rwanda ever since. But inside Rwanda, 
The country has been remarkably stable. It has made tremendous advances in female representation in the government, in education, electrification, water. They built up an amazing tourist sector. They they have a, a gorilla tour that is not to be believed. That's very well regulated. So you know, they're very strong environmentalists. They don't allow plastic bags in the country, oh, wow. <laughs> for example. Interesting. They are a, a really fascinating study in what was needed in a country that was that destroyed. He also uh, created a reconciliation program because he had over one hundred thousand people in prison for being part of the genocide, and that was not sustainable. Right. So less around maybe not even 10 years after the genocide, he set up this system of if you came out and confessed your sins and asked for forgiveness, you could come back into society. Mm. And it was a, it was a thing called the Chacha court and the community would sit like wherever they were, they would sit there, there, the people would come in the orange jumpsuits from prison and they would say, I did this. I killed your family. I feel really bad about it. I want to, you know, know if we can if we can sit side by side and continue to you know have a have a society. And if they said that, and if the if the Tutsi survivor accepted that, they were they were let out of prison. Did that work? <laughs> I mean, I think by many measures it it, it clearly did. That's interesting. Because I mean, it's, no system is perfect, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I think what you have in Rwanda is just like Epiphany. In Bissacero, yeah, she lived side by side with the people who killed her family, yeah, wow. and and that she's just made that you know something that she accepts. Do they marry each other though, or, or is that that's that's okay? Sure, they've, they've made Everything. a oh, yeah. lot of progress. They made time, a yeah. lot. Okay, so it's not just that they can cohabitate each other, but they actually there isn't that conflict. Along. They're besties. <laughs> yeah, be, you know, be, before the Europeans came. You could become you could become a member of either tribe, you know, through marriage or even by just getting a cow. <laughs> you just say you could have been a Hutu farmer, and then if you got two cows, then you they said, yeah. "Oh, you're a Tutsi." So a lot of what the society was before is being restored, but it takes you know it takes a long time to heal all wounds. Of course, yeah. I have a lot of graduate level questions for Richards, including why Europeans ruined the place in the first place. But I think let's, I want to talk about how this movie actually came together. Like, <laughs> Emma, so you got this email from him. And then were you a little bit like, why does this white American man want to say this story? Were you at all? Or did he already give you the background about why he was interested in doing this? Um, no, I wasn't surprised as to him trying to make the story, especially when I heard he's married to a Tutsi and who had been through the genocide and through the, the conflict. And I, I wasn't surprised. I think what I was, what I would say about Richard is that he's really interested in telling the authentic story. He's, yeah. he's very particular about having everything being truthful, having everything, you know, having the movie made according to how being, being factual. And that, you know, you hardly find that with a lot of Western filmmakers who come into Africa. They want to fashion the story to meet like a Hollywood audience. But Richard yeah. is very particular about that, about having the story be authentic, you know. And that's one of the things that really drew me to this story. And yeah, having him, you know, on the project, or him reaching out to me and working together, it's just been very seamless and very, 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 very seamless as an African working with him. Yeah. So is it challenging having to be so factual? 
I mean, I, I always wonder, like, you know, with Hollywood, Richard, like you were saying with the Don Cheeto movie, Hotel Rwanda. And I wonder sometimes if it's just easier to not be factual just because you could control the story. No, it's, 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 it's a fascinating story. Yeah. It's quite, it's quite, it's, it's, it's a story that it's, it's so well formed that it fits perfectly for screen, right? I mean, just meeting Epiphany and just listening to her and standing on the mountain where everything happened and having her show you how she threw stones at the Hutu militias. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's a ready-made movie. So it's it's not yeah. been hard following the or having the film being factual. It's just been so well made, and you have such amazing characters that everything pop out, and you know it's it's been great so far. Yeah, I would watch a documentary about you guys making it because that's <laughs> kind of crazy to go watch Epiphany. You know, like alive, like you said, alive and well, and still young. You know, recounting the story to you live about where she was. Mm-hmm. And you're saying she's throwing stones. So again, kind of going back to that notion of the the Hutus were using guns and real weapons. Wa- real weapons, and the Tutsis were used. Tell tell us a little bit more about that. So Bibirara had some experience fighting in the past, and the the main thing about this film is how does he take this group of farmers and cattle herders and turn them into like well formed armies you know well-formed fighters and Mm -hmm. one of the things that was even quite fascinating was the fact that they used what they had farm equipment they used stones from the mountain and they they formed and you know the way that they had a very well-formed battle strategy and for me it's while listening to all these people talk about it they, they were broken into three layers they were the stone throwers who would the stone gatherers and the stone throwers who will throw the stones to destabilize the militias coming up this hill mm-hmm. and then you had people who will run into the crowd and Birara will scream at the, the men to run in and mix in and these men will run into the crowd of militias and grab them you know so they they you know they couldn't fire into this mix because they had their people and they had the tutsis in them and they would grab the 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 militias and you know use sticks to hit them and fight them and they were so good at using these sticks that they had places on their body where they could hit and literally kill this man oh my god yeah it was it was while the other side has guns while the other side that's insane (laughs) You, you know, the fascinating thing was the Tutsis didn't know how to use guns. So they would take the guns and bury these guns. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. So it's, it's quite an amazing story, right? And, you know, just having it being factual, it's just enough to bring yeah, this yeah. past the life. Yeah. Yeah. You can't even make that up. It's like just so intense. Yeah. <laughs> So, so so tell us more about your background, Emma. I know you're right now in in New York and you're there for another film of yours, but you're a director, a cinematographer, a writer. Is is that right? Tell us a little bit more about how you got into it all. So, so the typical African family where everybody expects their child to either be a lawyer, doctor or or whatnot. And then I wake up this morning and they tell my parents, oh, I'm going to be a filmmaker. And they're like, what, what is that? You know? (laughs) So they're like, okay, go to school, study computer science. And I went to school and I studied computer science for six years. And I said, okay, I'm done. I have this certificate. I'm going to study film. And then I went to, I went to film school in Michigan. I went to, so I, I did some courses in New York and then I came back to Nigeria. And 
the industry in Nigeria is growing so big. You know, we have companies like Netflix, we have Amazon coming into Africa because, you know, and then there was this need for skills. And then that's where my, my journey started. I worked for some of the biggest TV brands here in, in, in Africa. And then I also worked as a video journalist with the BBC and Bloomberg. So while I was working as a video journalist in BBC with the BBC, I would go into communities and interview people. And I was really so inspired by, you know, having people in like the 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 the, the hardest, the hardest, hardest parts of society in, in Nigeria or in West Africa or in Africa and have them talk to me with so much pride and so much, you know, so there was a big community. And that struck me. And I really wanted to make films celebrating people from this part of the community, this, this marginalized areas of Africa and show their strength and show their, their, you know, their passion, their community. And so I, I, I said, okay, fine. I want to make stories like this. Before then, I was making stories for big brands, for fancy films, you know, everybody wealthy, you know speaking right. queen's english and i just said okay i'm just I gonna make i was gonna make my first film kasala and it's a story about four boys in one of the biggest slums in lagos one of them steal their uncle's precious rickety car and they wreck it and the story was how they struggled to raise 25 dollars to fix the car and everything that you can imagine going wrong and with these characters, I explore the, the problems within the society. But at the end of the day, celebrate the strength of this boy, celebrate the tenacity and the community. And, you know, the, the film traveled to 30 international film festivals, won nine awards. And, you know, it was such a good, great success. I was like, yeah, I'm going to make my second one. And I made the second film about this seamstress who discovers her father is alive and she has to go back to find him. And in finding her father, she deals with her commitment issues and emotional issues and she's able to resolve that and find love and that's the second film that I'm presenting here in New York so a lot of my films have been about strong community and that's why when Richard reached out to me about Bicicero the daughter's story I was like yes I want to make this (laughs) (laughs) I want to make this it's a strong female character it's 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 straight out just hearing him at first I thought it was I thought this this is too it's just too fascinating to be real until I went to Rwanda and I saw all these people and I was, I stood on the same hill and, you know, it just struck my heart. And I was like, this is, this is a film that I want to be involved with. And that's just how my background ties into this, this film. Yeah. It's funny. I don't know if Gabriela, you got that when she was talking, when you were mentioning about your parents and everybody in Nigeria expecting you to be, you know, a doctor or a lawyer as Persians. Yes, we can relate. relate. We can relate. I'm glad we've all disappointed our parents together. All all of us. (laughs) But I mean, and I, you, you mentioned the term poverty porn earlier, and I thought it was really interesting because I always thought about, and I, and I'm sure I've complained to Gabriella about this about movies about the Middle East where everything is sad. You're, you're, there's, there's no uplifting story about that. No, these people aren't always sad and depressed and have nothing going for them and have no hope. There, there's a lot of that going on, a lot of success and happiness. So. By the way, I went to, so I was born in the U.S. and I went to Iran for the first time like 10 years ago. And I was shocked that it wasn't like the movies that I had seen. (laughs) I was like, this place is beautiful. Tehran is modern. Like, I love this place, you know? And I think that it it is, it's so, it's so funny that 
movies are really a lot of what yeah, gives us the understanding. Yeah. Influence us so much. And that's why it's amazing that you guys are, you know, trying to keep it factual. And are you, do you have, uh, you know, historians, researchers going through, or how are you kind of making sure that it is as factual and authentic as it could be? Definitely a process. Yeah, definitely a process. One of our co-producers is is a survivor who has worked um, with survivor groups, and so she's been the one person that every time we went to see Epiphany, she's been with us. And we also work with the Kigali Genocide Memorial team. And in a way, when you do a, a any film in Rwanda about the genocide against the Tutsi, you have to work with a government agency. They have a government agency to ensure that you're doing it, you know, factually. So mm. yeah, we have we have several layers of, of fact checking on it. And Richard, how tell us a little bit about your career tra- trajectory and what you've, you know, you're working in television, then getting to documentaries and, and tell us how you kind of started this path for yourself. Let me I'll give a shout out to my dad, my late father, Monty Hall, who was the a game show host, very beloved in this country, and you know, with a long, popular show that ran on TV for many years. So, my sisters and I—I I have two sisters—we all grew up in the entertainment industry atmosphere, and we're all in the entertainment industry. I—I <laughs> I started my own path in in television news in in New York City for ABC News. Then I moved to San Francisco, where I was able to you know move up the ladder quickly, and I ran a news department there. Starting at age 26, I was a kind of a, a bratty executive. And then after, a, you know, about a decade of news, I went out on my own and I started getting into documentary and unscripted, where I met you, Gabriella, in uh, the yeah. unscripted world. Right after I worked on The Amazing Race, I think I came, that's when we started working together. So Richard was my mentor, is my mentor. He was the person that kind of gave me that first shot of my first like real producer gig. And so I'm forever, forever indebted to him. (laughs) Gabriella moved on to, you know, tremendous things that I had nothing to do with, but I I appreciate her, her shout out. But I kept doing documentaries, even while I was doing dating shows and weight loss comp- and fashion, you know, competition shows. Those were like the bread and butter. It was just, there was just yeah. so many of them and it was so much fun to do them. I did the PBS documentary and I did the 600 and I never wanted to really let go of sort of that route. And so I've had different careers. I had the news, I had the unscripted, I had the documentary, and now I'm going into feature. And that's, I think, the really great thing about being in this business is that you can morph and use the same skill sets to it's all storytelling yeah exactly and i mean i think you know i do what i do because i love storytelling at the heart of everything you know even this podcast that's how it all started my curiosity i mean what would you say for you was the thing that kept you going through this crazy business richard oh i mean it's i think just it's the people you work with really like when i was working with you we just had the greatest time yeah, we were having fun and we would celebrate, you know, like we could tell a story really well and we would celebrate our successes and we would have challenges in, in you know, because of our network clients and stuff like that. You know, we, we had to deliver. So it was this delicious combination of, of pressure, reward, challenge yeah. and people that you get to work with, like a bunch of misfits, like like all of us who just didn't want to become doctors or lawyers. <laughs> I love it. Our poor parents. 
We're going to jump into rapid fire questions. Are you guys ready? This is a little fun, a little keep you on your toes. <laughs> Emma, Emma looks terrified. Emma's like, what is this? Emma's like, I lost connection. Yeah. Abort. All right. Bye. <laughs> All right. I'm going to start with you, Emma. Uh, okay. in- instant coffee. Yes. Or you'd rather die. I'd rather die. <laughs> yes, thank you, Emma. I love you. Okay. As Richard takes a swig of his Folgers yeah. instead. He's making his powder. And- <laughs> Richard, is it bad to cut flowers from your neighbor's garden? I've done it. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. No, it's not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Emma, what is the best middle of the night snack? A Snickers bar. Oh, Ooh, yeah. yes. That's like supposed to hit all the major food groups it too. Does, so, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's healthy. It's, it's salad. <laughs> um, Richard, have you ever given yourself a haircut? No. <laughs> Even no, during my COVID? No, my daughter did when she was three, though. It was the funniest oh. thing. We just found all the found all her hair in, in the waste paper basket. But yeah, no, I've you never done that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no. Emma, who is your personal hero? Ooh, my dad. I think, yeah, my dad. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm such a daddy's girl. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why would you say if you had to? I think because we he he taught me everything. My, my dad, we ha- we're, we're from a family of one boy, six girls. Oh, <laughs> is the one boy the the last one? Like he's, he's the first, and he was always in boarding school. So I became like he's I became like the tomboy. I was like my that's dad's so right hand man. Yeah, he taught me everything. Yeah, so that's why I'm very technical. I, I'm very technical with everything. He taught me how to yeah. fix things and all of that. Yeah, yeah. My heart always- goes out to your brother. With six- <laughs> PMSing in that house. <laughs> I mean, I that's amazing. Richard, who's your personal hero? My personal hero is Robert Kennedy Sr., the one who was assassinated in 1968. He was my childhood hero because I really felt as that he was going to like bring the country together. You know, he had this coalition of the West Side Los Angeles progressives and the African American community and the Hispanic community. Cesar Chavez used to campaign with him, and I just thought this is like the ideal yeah. you know, leader for this country. And, and then he was killed when I was a kid. So he kind of stuck with me. I, I always roll up my sleeves like he did. <laughs> so if you, if you, you have, that's you have what the he Kennedy used to do. vibes. Yeah. Yeah. I so I, that's something it's like, I've done that since I was a kid because of him. And uh, yeah, he was my hero. Orly, your hero. You, Gabriella. <laughs> okay, thank always. You. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> Emma, what is the worst advice you've ever received? What is the worst advice? Well, there's been a lot. Well, give oh. us the give us the best advice because sometimes when you rejigger your the best advice or some go to, it reminds you of the people that kind of told you the opposite. Okay, so I think the best advice has was like my mom. She says she used to say success has plenty brothers and sisters. Yeah, she's just like yeah. just focus on making doing the being the best focus on focus on your craft and the, every other thing will gravitate towards you and that's just like one of the right. things that stuck with me yeah I but love that. yeah <laughs> so Richard can you think, think of yeah. the worst advice um so uh, I mean I think my dad always was a really solid you know guy but uh, he did say you know go to law school 
You want to go into entertainment? You're a lawyer, got a law degree. You can be the president of the studio and people can work for you instead of you working for them. And that was advice that I'm glad I didn't take because I hated anything to do with law. So yeah, that that would have been the worst. But he also gave me the best advice, which was whatever you, you know, come up with, uh, own it. Like if it's an intellectual property, like he owned Let's Make a Deal, he said, don't give away your stuff. Try to own it. Ah, um, okay. And so that that's really great advice. I didn't know yes. that your dad owned Let's Make a Deal. Yeah. Yeah, he made it up. He used to do a, a live radio show back when they used to do live radio shows. Yeah. And when they were short of time or had time to kill at the end of the show, he used to go into the audience and, and do the very first version of Let's Make a Deal. Like he would say, I'll give you a dollar for every quarter you have in your pocket, you know? And then it just became so popular yeah. that he said, I think I'm onto something. And he <sighs> made Let's Make a Deal. Oh, I love that story. Yeah. So real quick, I'm going to tell you guys best advice I've ever gotten from Richard. He said, he said, I asked, I asked him basically like, how do you deal with stress and, you know, whatnot? And he said to me, you tap into your senses. And so, you know, take a, take a sniff, look around, you know, look and just basically tap into them. And there is something that it does. It kind of calms you down. And so I use that to this day. She does, because I think you've told me that before. Right? I have shared (laughs) Richard's words of wisdom. (laughs) All right. Okay. Are you guys Swifties? What is Swifties? When you're a big Taylor Swift fan and you follow everything, <laughs> Richard, <up. laughs> Richard knows. I have grown daughters and a, and a, and a like a kindergartner, but I'm a Swifty because I think she's one of the most powerful political forces in this country, and I, I love see. everything she's doing. Okay, yeah. I'm all for it. I love that this question was the one Richard nailed. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, tell us something we don't know. Well, I think I did that earlier on when I told you that the Don Cheadle character was not who they say he was. Yep. I would say that what people don't know is that this is going to be the African century, that oh. Africa is going to be the place where you're going to see the most uh, amazing prosperity, creativity, and it's, it's, going to, it's going to be Africa's century, and it hasn't been that way for a long time. But the rest of the world is falling apart. And I believe that, you know, when my wife and I talk about where do we, do we ever want to leave West Los Angeles? We actually talk about going back to Rwanda. So mm. there are lots of reasons for that. I think that the explosion in, in the arts from Africa is something that the West does not see coming, but it's coming. Okay. And Emma? That's almost exactly what I wanted to say. I'm such a huge <laughs> Pan-Africanist. Like, right. there's so much talent here. We have stories that have never been seen, worlds that have never been seen. And it's going to be amazing what will come up from this part of the world in the coming years. Yeah, I'm actually excited because I'm sick of this shit we've been saying over and over again all the time. So yeah. I look forward to Africa's century. All right, guys. So where can we find you? Emma, where can we find you? Oh, I'm on social media, Instagram at Emma Edosio, E-M-A-E-D-O-S-I-O. It's Emma Edosio on all platforms. So you can find me there. And Richard, where can people find you? I'm on, on Twitter, X, at Purodusa, P-U-R-A-D-U-C-O. Amazing. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for listening to Tell Us Something We Don't Know. 
You can find us on Instagram at TUSWDK or email us at info at tellussomethingwedontknow.com. Audio and editing by Simon Greffenstedt and theme music provided by Signature Tracks. Signature Tracks.